Remember last episode? Well, relax, I'm not going to reinvoke a whole bunch of referential nostalgia just to get you back in the groove a third time. Instead, I particularly want to call your attention to one piece of information passed on to you as a helpful way to understand the role of emotions in satisfying personal needs. That is, when you have an essential need, your brain will try to help you fulfill that need by emphasizing, with little chemical reward, those things you do which help satisfy the need. That little chemical jolt gets interpreted as a pleasant or good emotion. Your brain is wired to keep repeating things that make you feel good and avoid those things which make you feel bad, for which you get a negative or even no chemical response. And so, you have a whole host of emotion-based responses stored away in your brain, some good, some bad, that you subconsciously refer to at a moment's notice to decide how you will react to any given stimulus and satisfy particular needs. The needs in question formed a sort of hierarchy, a pyramid of needs, with the most basic and important needs at the bottom, food, shelter, sleep, and so on, and more advanced needs at the very tip, things like creative activities and other expressions of the self, self-actualization. When needs lower down the pyramid are unfulfilled, needs at higher tiers cannot be adequately fulfilled until the lower tier needs have been resolved. From this comes the motivation for most human behavior, meeting those needs which are lacking before proceeding on to fulfill the next tier of needs. This is Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, named after the man who developed it. A simple example may suffice to prove the validity of the hierarchy, though I have to stress that this is just a relatable example and not the way things really function, just an illustration of the principle without being the actual principle itself. Say you're at work, working on a project for whatever it is you do. The project is important and requires a certain amount of your focus in order to complete it successfully. Deciding the fate of the free world, for example, or writing a podcast script, say. Both equally important jobs, obviously. If you happen to be one of those people who skip breakfast regularly, along about lunchtime you start getting pretty hungry. And the hungrier you get, the harder it is to really focus on what it is you're doing. Maybe the chain of ideas you're trying to get across in your 20 minutes of listening time start to get jumbled as your brain increasingly wants a slice of pizza, or a bagel, or even, heaven forbid, a pizza bagel. Possibly you forget about open mics and things like diplomacy, and not putting your foot in your mouth every five minutes as you try to negotiate peace between two warring factions because your stomach is sending messages to your brain about broccoli or a nice soup and salad luncheon at the Rotary Club instead. As this lower tier need for food goes unanswered, it is much harder to satisfy the higher tier need of not screwing up until you actually get some food in. We've all been there and seen it in action. That's why so few of us have Nobel Peace Prizes and podcasts of our own, and why so many of us are advised to get a good night's sleep and eat a well-balanced breakfast. Now imagine that going on and on, day after day, and you'll see how it can affect people and their ability to meet their own needs. And you'll begin to understand how important and obviously correct Maslow's hierarchy of needs is. Except, of course, it isn't. 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs is one of those theories that catches the public eye because it seems so obvious and observably true. How can it be otherwise, we ask ourselves. Every time I miss a couple of hours sleep, I can't function the next day until I catch a nap. When I don't eat, I can't concentrate. It's all so obvious, so clear. That must be the way things work. Basic needs first, then all the other stuff once those are satisfied. Which is cool. It's nice we all have such a widely shared, similar experience. Except we're not the right people to decide whether Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a thing or not. We're not qualified to decide its accuracy, nor the effectiveness of its methodology. See, in academic circles, Maslow's hierarchy of needs might all just be garbage. And as popular as it is in gaming circles, it might pay to know why. This is GM Word of the Week. And I'm Fiddleback. To understand why the hierarchy of needs might not be all it's cracked up to be, we first have to understand the man responsible for it, Abraham Maslow. Born in 1908 in Brooklyn, New York, Maslow was one of seven children of first-generation Jewish immigrants from Kiev in what is now Ukraine. Perhaps you've heard of it. Recently. Fleeing Tsarist Russia, his mother and father landed in New York City in a working-class, multi-ethnic neighborhood. Abraham's home life was strained, especially when it came to his mother, with whom he did not get along at all. He perceived her to be lazy, racist, narcissistic, ugly, self-serving, and exploitive of everyone around her. What his mother thought of him is unrecorded. As a result, Maslow spent much of his time out of the home and in the libraries of New York, reading everything he could get his hands on. Once he entered college, he focused at first on legal studies before dropping out of City College of New York and spending a year at Cornell University, before again dropping out after a year and returning to City College. Once he graduated from there, he went on to study psychology at the University of Wisconsin and received his master's degree. As far as Maslow was concerned, the field of psychology had a major problem. It tended to focus heavily on problems and abnormal psychology, and not at all on positive mental health. There seemed to be little work on what constituted good mental health, and Maslow wanted to change that with something he called humanistic psychology. Humanistic psychology is described as sitting somewhere between the ideas of Freud's psychoanalytical approach, where a person's psychology is understandable only through careful analysis and understanding of one's past, childhood, and genetics, and B.F. Skinner's behaviorism, in which individual psychology could best be understood as either a reflexive reaction to certain stimuli or a culmination of previous conditioning using rewards and punishments. And if that's a confusing mess for you, consider it this way. Freud had you on the couch talking about your mother and cigars, while Skinner had you pressing buttons to shock someone in a box and running mock prisons. Or working out how to make people keep playing video games. Take your pick. Humanistic psychology, as Maslow envisioned it, involves self-awareness and mindfulness in order to help the individual reach their full potential and uses the results to change from a set of poor behaviors to more healthy ones. 
The core idea is that all people are basically good and want to live fulfilled, self-actualized lives. In Maslow's view, people were already capable of improving themselves in their lives, and the goal of humanistic psychology was to remove any obstacles to doing so. Obstacles like unmet needs. Hence, Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a way to illustrate the various priorities and their relative importance. And that's all well and good. There's nothing wrong with that on the face of it, but it pays to look at how Maslow got there and what his methods were for determining the hierarchy of needs that are at the core of the idea. First, let's look at how Maslow determined what needs were useful and where they should go in the hierarchy. And if you need to, feel free to go back and listen to the last episode to hear those needs and how they are organized. Maslow began by observing monkeys. Or rather, it was his observation of monkeys that got him thinking about the hierarchy. He saw that if monkeys were given choices, they would most often choose the option that fulfilled the needs of the most individuals. If given a choice between food and play, the monkeys would most often choose food. If given a choice between water and food, water was often chosen first. In fact, monkeys denied water were far more likely to be aggressive and difficult than monkeys given water but denied food. And it wasn't until the monkeys' physiological needs were met that their social needs, like establishing dominance, could be dealt with. This all suggested to Maslow that there was some inherent priority to the monkey's basic needs, something which, if it could be worked out and organized, could tell you how and why the monkeys behaved as they did at any given moment. And if in monkeys, why not in people as well? But how could you determine what the needs were in people who admittedly led much more complex and complicated lives than your average monkey? There could be thousands of needs in people that simply weren't present in monkeys. How did you work out what they could be, and how did you then decide on their relative importance? The monkeys were a good start for determining the most basic needs, but people were going to be far more, well, needy. And here we have to stop down and talk a bit about basic assumptions as they apply to the sciences. The fact is, science is full of assumptions. Really, it's very hard to have science if you don't allow quite a lot of assumptions almost all the time. Otherwise, what happens is that you have to reprove everything you proved yesterday in order to make any further progress today. If you were trying to, for instance, split the atom, but couldn't make any scientific assumptions at all, you'd have several thousand years of scientific knowledge to recreate every day before you could make even an incremental step forward. Everything from the very earliest first principles like fire is hot, water is wet, things fall down, all the way to whatever tiny bit of learning you did yesterday where things almost, but not quite, went bam. Except obviously, you'd never get that far with all the backlog of work you'd need to do. You know, like retelling Batman's origin story every time you release a new film. By the time that's out of the way, it's time to roll credits and wait for the next retelling. So science has to rely on a number of assumptions to really make any progress at all. But unlike the sorts of assumptions you and I make, scientific assumptions have to pass some basic qualifiers before they are allowed to become assumptions. 
Down at the very bottom of scientific assumptions are three guiding principles, three core assumptions that come before all others. The basic assumptions. The first basic assumption is that there are natural causes for things that happen in the world around us. Apples fall to the ground not because tiny demons fly up from the ground and drag the apple down the moment we release it, but because the world contains natural forces that act upon apples to make them fall. We may not fully understand why a thing occurs in the natural world, but science assumes that there are natural causes that make things happen and not some fantastic explanation involving demons or little green men. Basic assumption number two. Evidence from the natural world can be used to learn about those causes. We can learn about how and why apples fall by observing the apples, watching them fall, and then conducting further experiments using what is learned to expand what is known. How does the falling of an apple compare to the falling of a stone? Why don't feathers fall the same way that apples do? Does everything fall? Can gravity explain other things as well, like the motion of planets in the night sky? One of the problems with the little demon explanation of gravity is that the demons cannot be observed or measured in any meaningful way. How do you test for mythological creatures? If little demons grab onto objects that are supposed to fall, why doesn't it take longer for objects further away from the ground to start falling? How many things do you have to drop before the little demons get overwhelmed and can't keep up? By observing and conducting experiments, we can learn more about gravity and how it works and see what might be wrong with other potential explanations. Which leads us into the third basic assumption. There is consistency in the causes that operate in the natural world. Similar situations have similar causes. The apple falls the same way the stone does because the same gravity is acting on both at the same time. The little demons suggest an explanation that is inconsistent in its particulars. The distance problem and the overwhelming problem and the fact that no other particular evidence exists to fully support the existence of such gravity emulating demons in the first place. The whole point of the consistency basic assumption is that things from one explanation can be used not only in places where that same explanation fits the evidence, but also with other causes and events in the natural world. Gravity works on other falling objects. It doesn't change from moment to moment or object to object, and if and when it does seem to vary, it doesn't do so in unpredictable, unexpected ways. What is learned from falling apples can be applied to other things like the orbits of planets, the motions of stars, and what's likely to happen if you let your pencil roll off the table. These three basic assumptions that there are natural causes for things that happen, that evidence from the natural world can be used to learn about those causes, and that there is consistency in those causes are where science starts. From those assumptions, a whole host of other knowledge has been developed and put into use. That's why when you go to invent rockets to the moon, you don't have to reprove that gravity works, that the moon actually exists as a physical object and not just a cardboard cutout taped to the sky, or that any of a thousand other basic principles still continue to operate in the way they've been shown to work for generations. You can assume that certain things hold true without having to constantly reprove them because they come from and follow the three basic assumptions. Assumptions that do not follow the three basics 
are not based on what can reasonably be called good science. And so, we arrive back at Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, and the assumptions he made while coming up with it. The monkeys were a good start and provided a decent baseline of behavior as it related to basic needs, but Maslow was going to need more in order to make the hierarchy universally applicable. However, Maslow had a problem. You couldn't, according to him, study just anyone and identify a useful working collection of needs. See, some people just weren't fit for purpose. Maslow wrote that the study of crippled, stunted, immature, and unhealthy specimens can yield only a cripple psychology and a cripple philosophy. In other words, it was no good looking at people who were somehow not already exemplifying a proper, well-adjusted psychology. All you'd get was bad psychology and philosophy, no good to anyone. Which, fair enough, even though this was the way things were done up to that point, and even if it comes off as a bit nose-in-the-air superior, it is a valid point to make. You need to know what a good, well-adjusted person is like before you can really decide what the deviation from quote-unquote normal is. But keep that in the back of your mind for the moment. The obvious question now is, who did Maslow pick to study, how did he pick them, and how did he study them? Well, Maslow knew a lot of really important people. Or rather, he knew of a lot of really important people. Since the goal of Maslow's hierarchy was to eliminate obstacles to self-actualization, he elected to study people who had clearly self-actualized, who best exemplified the humanistic psychology approach. And of course, the people who had most clearly self-actualized were those who had been very successful in their chosen fields. People who had already met Maslow's goal. And so, Maslow set about studying the writings and lives of presidents, great discoverers, famous writers, and so forth. The cream of the crop. The really very, very best people. And so he sat down to read about the likes of Albert Einstein, Eleanor Roosevelt, Aristotle, Francis Bacon, Beethoven, and others whose works or lives had impact, reasoning that they were, of course, and obviously the most properly self-actualized people ever, truly well-adjusted specimens and exemplary individuals. Now, to be fair to Maslow, he did also incorporate a study of the healthiest 1% of college students at his school. But the bulk of the influence on the hierarchy of needs were those well-known folks. And the problem with that is the assumptions he had to make. For one, he determined who he would study simply based on how he felt about them. In Maslow's opinion, it was folks like Einstein and Aristotle and the others who were well-adjusted people. But what was his proof? That they were famous? That they had produced some great work? That other people who knew about them considered them to be ideal candidates for Maslow to examine? No. Basically, Maslow just thought that they should be the basis of his study, and so he used them. And who said they were well-adjusted individuals who would themselves have said they led vibrant, self-actualized lives? Many of them could not speak for themselves at that point. Certainly Aristotle had been dead for quite some time. Really, what Maslow had selected 
were people who were very open and who, either by dint of effort or desire, had produced much that could be read and studied. But that didn't mean they actually were self-actualizing role models. They were just people with a lot of content uh, where Maslow could get at it. Nevertheless, Maslow made his study of these people and built his lists and then arranged the needs based on what he cleaned from their writings. What did these worthy people say they needed and how did they value those needs and organize their lives to get them? Based on that, Maslow ordered his list. But that's not the only problem with Maslow's hierarchy. To some extent, we also have to consider the other people Maslow chose not to study. Those people who may have been incredibly well self-actualized, but who did not deign to write books or produce great works that Maslow could then read or experience. The most perfectly well-adjusted, self-actualized, content, and happy janitor or librarian or what have you would have escaped Maslow's notice simply because they didn't produce something Maslow could then study. Maslow assumed that if you were worth studying, you would produce something that stood the test of time. Because obviously, that's what everyone wants and how everyone defines success. A faulty assumption, if ever there was one. Another of the problems with the hierarchy. It's really hard to say it is universally applicable to each and every person you may meet. Nothing really says that everyone values all these needs identically, and in fact, many groups of people do not, whether because of cultural, societal, or personal differences. Some cultures and societies don't value the performance of the individual as the most important thing. It's the survival and needs of the collective group that take precedence, and that people grow up fulfilling and embracing. The needs of the group rank far above that of the individual, making the specific needs of acceptance and community outweigh and outrank the needs for freedom and individuality. Even on the individual level, people may experience needs in different ways and place different values on particular needs that are at variance with the hierarchy. So, unfortunately, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has some fairly significant flaws. Really, it only applies if you are trying to be a particular type of person in a particular type of society and does not universally apply to every individual in every place and time. It really only says what Maslow found in people selected by his own standards, which he deemed significant enough to actually study, and is limited by both what was available to him at the time and what he already thought he knew about his subjects. It is heavily influenced by his assumptions. Fortunately, this is not a new revelation. If you look into Maslow's hierarchy and humanistic psychology, you pretty quickly find out that there is dissent regarding the actual usefulness of his findings and even the rankings of the needs within the hierarchy. And more importantly, you'll find out that there are other people also looking at basic human needs and trying to make sense of it all and what it means for personality development and self-actualization. Everything from the delightfully named Manfred Max Neef's Fundamental Human Needs to Giffen and Terrell's Human Givens, which was developed in the 1990s, and not only looks at the basic innate human needs, 
but also the basic innate human resources that allow those needs to be met even from birth. Each subsequent theory since Maslow has refined, improved on, and even in some cases rejected Maslow's initial theory and improved the study of human behavior the world over. It always pays to check your assumptions at the door. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. The show continues, in spite of absence, to be supported by listeners on Buy Me a Coffee. No ads, no sponsorships, no product placements. Just listener support given generously and willingly. You can join them and help support the show at buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback and set up a monthly recurring pledge or make a one-time donation. Either one is great and very much appreciated. A new project was just announced to our supporters yesterday, so join in for the fun. GM Word of the Week is a Fiddleback production and was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions, which can be found at sessions.blue. One can choose to go back towards safety or forward toward growth. Growth must be chosen again and again. Fear must be overcome again and again.